Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 7 of the second part of our two-part mindfulness series. Uh, just going to be me today. Zeke is out of town. We've got a great episode. Going to be talking about kind of the science behind mindfulness. Uh, last week, we talked about neuroplasticity um, and why we know that mindfulness has the ability to do certain things to your brain. Today, we're going to get into a little bit more of the science of actual mindfulness itself. It's going to be a good one. This season is sponsored by ProX. ProX is the premier multi-sport training destination in the Midwest that hosts sports performance, sports rehab, and physical therapy, as well as sports-specific instruction programming for baseball, softball, football, golf, and more. ProX puts everything an athlete needs under one roof, just like the pros. The focus at ProX is maximizing the development and potential of every athlete in all areas while keeping health at the forefront. For more information, check out ProXAthlete.com. Welcome to the Coaching Minds Podcast, helping you overcome obstacles so you can reach and achieve more. Here are your hosts, Ben and Z. So this season is all about tools for greatness, and what we're going to be talking about today is how can you use mindfulness to do great things. And there've been there's been all kinds of studies that have shown the effectiveness of practicing mindfulness. And so our, our goal today is to just go through some of the science and some of the studies that are presented in the book, Altered Traits. And what I want to start off with is we're just going to do a quick mindfulness activity. So please, if you're driving, do not participate in this. But if you have the opportunity to safely close your eyes, would invite you to close your eyes. And then we are going to pay attention to the breath as it comes in and the breath as it goes back out and as it comes in and as it goes back out. And for the next 30 seconds, just stay quiet, stay calm, and don't focus on anything but the breath. And then we're going to gently come back into the room. And so that that's kind of like the, the beginning of kind of mindfulness, starting to calm down, quiet down, be mindful of what's going on with your brain, what's going on with your body. And for some of you who've maybe never done mindfulness before, that it might have been completely awkward and you didn't like it at all. Pulling a quote from the book, they, they said that for beginners, this means a wobbly dance between full focus and a wandering mind. And when you first start mindfulness, it's okay that it's kind of weird and it doesn't feel right. Asian cultures dub it monkey mind is a, another quote from the book. And it's basically just hopping from one idea or if you picture a monkey swinging from branch to branch, it's just swinging from one idea to the next. So in the book, they talk about one of the studies where they tried to see what can science prove about mindfulness in the 70s. And they were looking at soft results like, do you feel anxious or on a scale from one to 10, how anxious do you feel? Um, and, and then which, you know, kind of depend on a person to be honest and to open up about it. 
and to be able to assess themselves accurately. But then they also looked at what they called hard results like heart rate and sweat. But what they were really struggling with was when they had the control group that was doing mindfulness and they had another group that was maybe doing other stress reducing techniques or an exercise group or things like that. What they, what they really found was that any positive intervention caused people to, quote, feel better. And they also found that the instructor or the teacher of the class, if if they were enthusiastic, that that would have an effect on how well the class went or how positive or how negative the experience was. And so, and one of the things that I really like about the book is they taught, they don't leave out studies like this where they set out to try and prove something, but then they ended up kind of proving this doesn't really prove anything. I think they do a really good job of not just making things up or not trying to force the results into their worldview. And when this book really starts to get interesting is when they introduce the functional MRI scan, because now we can start to see, okay, when this person is doing this, or when they're looking at this, or when they're listening to this, here are the parts of their brain that are active. And so one of the next studies that they talk about in the book was how there were some volunteers that had never meditated and didn't really know what mindfulness was. And they agreed to do 20 minutes a day for a week and then have an MRI scan. And during this scan, they saw images that were some that were really nasty and some that were really sweet, like some terrible, gruesome burn victims with skin peeling off. But then also like cute and adorable puppies or bunnies or whatever. And so they had these people watch the images in their just normal state of mind. And then also while practicing mindfulness and during mindful attention, they found that the amygdala response was significantly lower to all the images, which proved that the mindfulness was having an impact on the amygdala, which we know is a kind of that control board for the fight or flight response. But there was another study right after that basically showed that the lessened amygdala reactivity was only during the mindful attentiveness. And so, yeah, it makes sense that if you're meditating or if you're doing a mindfulness practice that you would maybe be a little bit less stressed out. So while it showed that mindfulness had a had a positive effect on this area of the brain, it didn't necessarily prove hey, doing this over a period of time will help you in the real world have a little bit less of a reaction to really terrible or really great things and help you stay a little bit more even keeled. And so then they brought in what they called some Zen students who had spent a good portion of their life doing meditation and doing some mindfulness stuff. And they took these Zen students and they put them through some pain tests and they wanted to know what's their pain tolerance? When does it get uncomfortable? When does it get painful? And what they found was that these Zen students could not only bear more pain than the control students, but that there was also little activity in the executive, evaluative, and emotional areas during the pain. And so the, the scientific term for that is functional decoupling of the higher and lower brain regions that register pain. This was really the first time that they saw, wow, these people who have been practicing mindfulness, who have been doing meditation, they can tolerate more pain than the average everyday person. And not only could they tolerate it a little bit more, but they started to understand why that the, the upper and lower, the 
hey, my body is feeling this reaction and oh, I'm processing. Yeah, this hurts. I'm in pain. I need to do something about it. There, there was a little bit of a disconnect between the two compared to a normal person. So not only does it kind of lower the amygdala response, but now it also reduces the intensity of pain. And so they continue to some other studies that followed that. And there were brain scans of people who for years had just been working 70 hour weeks or more. Um, and not surprisingly, they found that they had enlarged amygdalas or amygdalae, as they call it in the book, and that there were weak connections between the prefrontal cortex, which has the ability to kind of think through, hey, this isn't that bad. We're going to be okay. Kind of that, that rational thought piece um, there, but there was a disconnect between that prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So as they were presented with some of these unsettling pictures, they were unable to what the book called uh, down regulate. And they compared it to people that are suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. And they found that victims of burnout basically can't put a halt to their brain's stress response. They're just always used to going and going and going that there's never kind of that healing time where they take a step back and get away from some of those pressures and those those constant stresses in their life. And and one of the other really interesting parts that came from that same study was that the stronger a person's sense of purpose was in life, the more quickly they recovered from these stresses in the lab. And I mean, how incredibly powerful is that? Like Simon Sinek's why, starting with the why, and you know, we've touched on this before, that having that why, knowing why you are doing this is going to help you when things get tough. Well, that, that's not just some opinion. That's scientifically, the stronger your sense of purpose in life, the better you can, quote, down-regulate or use the front part of your brain to get the middle part of your brain to calm down and cool off just a little bit. And so now we've got, it lowers the amygdala response, it reduces the intensity of pain, it can prevent burnout, um, but it also reduces cortisol levels. And so there was another study where they brought in, they called seasoned meditators who had a lifetime average of about 9,000 hours. And they applied stress to them. And what they found was that there was also a smaller rise in cortisol during these stressful situations. And the, the meditator's brain brains were also scanned when they saw disturbing images like the burn victims with skin falling off. And, and what they also revealed was that there was a lower level of reactivity in the amygdala. And so they, they couldn't be emotionally hijacked. And so this was while, while one of the previous studies found that yes, while we do the mindfulness, our amygdala can't be hijacked as easily and that we're a little bit in more in control of our emotions. This one went to show people who have been practicing this for a while, they get that added benefit even outside of their mindfulness practice. Just in their day-to-day -day life, they're in better control of their emotions. And if you really want to get into kind of the science, it, it's because there was a stronger connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And, you know, just like we talked about with muscle memory all the time, all that is, is neurons in your brain firing in a certain pattern repeatedly. And so now all of a sudden you can shoot that free throw almost with your eyes closed because you've done it 500,000 times, right? Well, when you are mindful and you are practicing being calm, being in control, 
quieting your mind, quieting your body. It's no different than that muscle memory of shooting a free throw or taking a golf swing. You're helping your body practice calming down and what they call down regulating. And so again, that that's not just someone's opinion. That's what the brain scans show that there is more connectivity between that front part of the brain and that middle part of the brain. Another study that they talked about in the book that I, that I thought was interesting was that whenever anger or anxiety is triggered, that the amygdala drives that, that prefrontal circuitry. And so disturbing emotions, when, when they kind of reach their peak and the amygdala is, has kind of been hijacked and you're no longer in control of your emotions, that it also paralyzes your executive function. So that would include you can't pay attention as well, uh, organizing, planning, and prioritizing, starting tasks and staying focused on them, understanding different points of view. You, you can't use your brain and think about complex things when you're in this state of terror or anxiety or anger. And I think that we've all kind of experienced that at some point. Maybe it's that that overwhelming pressure that I have just 500,000 things looming over my head and all of a sudden I write them down on a to-do list and it's like, okay, I've got a little bit more control back. Or your five-year-old is having an absolute tantrum and can't talk or think and you say, sweetie, let's take a couple deep breaths. And then all of a sudden they can communicate again. It's no different. But again, I think it's powerful when, when we're trying to say, all right, this is a, this is a tool that we're going to use for greatness, mindfulness. I think it's important to be able to say, look, we know that it does this to your amygdala and that it reduces the intensity of pain and prevents burnout, lowers cortisol levels, prevents emotional hijacking. But now with this executive function, they, they found that when we take active control of our attention, which is what we do when we meditate or when we do mindfulness, that we're now using this prefrontal circuitry. And so the amygdala has to quiet down. Basically, they can't be active at the same time. We can't be logically thinking or we can't be or slowing down and taking back control of our attention at the same time as we're having a panic attack or we're freaking out about things or we're anxious about things. Just another way that we can use mindfulness if we if we feel like we are in that state and we can't think clearly and we don't have control of our executive function, that can be a great sign that, hey, probably need to get back on this mindfulness track. We've talked about before being able to focus on the task at hand is an important skill for athletes. And they even went further than that. They said that we have what we call selective attention or the capacity to focus on one element and ignore others. We have what's called vigilance, maintaining a constant level of attention as time goes on. We have goal focus or cognitive control where we have the ability to keep a specific goal or task at the front of our mind despite other distractions that, okay, I got to get this done. It doesn't matter what happens. And then we have the last one was meta awareness. So being able to track the quality of one's own awareness, just for example, noticing when your mind starts to wander or when you've screwed up. And again, in the book, they talk about there was a group at MIT that used an MEG, which is they said it's a magnetic version of the EEG, which allows more precise targeting of the brain. But what they were able to prove was that mindfulness strengthens the ability to focus on one thing and ignore distractions. 
And so just like the, the monkey mind that maybe you experienced at the very beginning when we just sat still for 30 seconds, I mean, how often during your day do you sit still for 30 seconds without checking your phone, without looking at a screen, without checking your email, without, without doing something like that? And so especially in this, in this day and age of just constant distraction, being able to use mindfulness to kind of control your attention and improve your ability to stay focused on what you choose is incredibly important. And so I know one of the, one of the things that I've had conversations with coaches about was, you know, how much time are we talking here? And so one of the studies that, that they pointed out in the book, um, in a section about cognitive control was that, that just three 10 minute sessions of breath counting was enough to appreciably increase attention skills on a battery of tests. And that the biggest gains were among heavy multitaskers who did more poorly on those tests initially. Which is just a fancy way of saying if you have a difficult time staying focused on something, that doing these mindfulness activities can help you immediately. I mean, three sessions, 10 minutes a piece. I mean, that's a piece of cake. Think about how much time you put in to your job, your career, your athletics, your team improving your game. I mean, three sessions of 10 minutes. I know one of the, one of the things that I had a conversation about with an athlete was specifically about downtime during this, during the Corona pandemic, how she felt like if she was just sitting around doing nothing, that her brain would start to wander to all these worst case scenarios. And that was another thing that they talked about in the book. There's just, there's parts of your brain, the MPFC and the PCC. You can read the book if you want more information about the, a little bit deeper into the science of it, but that your brain basically basically has a default mode network. And so even when we're quote, not doing anything or not thinking about anything, you would think that maybe brain activity goes down, but it doesn't. In fact, your brain activity level, while nothing is going on, looks pretty similar to what's going on when you're trying to solve complex math problems. But where this gets interesting is when you're engaged in an active task like math or mindfulness or reading or communicating or things like that, that the the default area of your brain has to calm down and has to kind of back off. And then when you're not doing anything and you're just sitting around doing nothing, that now all of a sudden this default mode starts to kick back in. And so that's when people start to feel their mind wander or they start to focus on themselves. How am I doing in this experiment? What are they learning from me? I need to reply to Joe's phone message. And all of these mental activities focus on the I and the me. And so in this particular study, they, they basically found that our mind wanders to something about ourselves. Usually your thoughts, your emotions, your relationships, who liked your newest post on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever. And that when there's nothing else to capture our attention, our mind often wanders to what's troubling us. And one of the quotes that they used was that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And that's so true because our brain has a tendency to think about worst case scenarios or what they called a, a personal melodrama where we just think about all the bad stuff that's going on. 
And, and really they, the next part that they talked about was that how this prevents us from being able to get into a quote flow state. Um, and, and this is what athletes are after all the time, right? They want to get to that point where they are playing at their best. They've got full attention on the task at hand. Um, and that they're not thinking about, well, I wonder what other people think about me, or I wonder what I look like in this Jersey. And so not allowing your mind to just wander and having something that you're putting your mind, that you're putting your attention towards is an incredibly helpful tool. If, if you're one of those people that starts to kind of worst case scenario things and you start to get negative and you start to get judgmental and, and mindfulness can help with that. And, and in fact, the, you know, the book talks about the different parts of the brain, but I, I we'll just stick with the, the default mode, this, this part that likes to worst case scenario that likes to replay our, you know, our personal sob story of what's going on. That's difficult in our life that people that were long-term meditators had a stronger connection again with that prefrontal cortex or that thinking part of the brain. And they were able to quiet that monkey mind, or they were able to quiet that kind of wandering. I wonder if this happens. Well, what if this happens? I need to reply to this. And what about this post? And why don't I have any likes? And so mindfulness can help you if that's something that you struggle with to quiet that back down. The last thing that I wanted to point out just from the book was that mindfulness can help reduce the stickiness of our thoughts. And they described the, the stickiness as you just feel stuck and you can't get out of, you know, what, whatever thought comes to your mind, you know, maybe, maybe it's during a mindfulness activity and you think, man, my back really hurts. And then that's all you can focus on. And that's all you can think about, or you're getting ready to go up to the first tee in a golf match. And you think, man, my hands are really tight. I wonder, wonder why my hands are so tight. This is going to hurt my swing. Oh, do, do I need to try and loosen my grip? What, what? And so, and so we get stuck in this. And, and another thing that they found was that mindfulness can help get rid of that stickiness so that that person going up to the first tee box, it's more of a, oh, my hands are kind of tight. That's weird. Oh, look at that bird. That's, that's a cool bird. And, and it's just, it's a, we are not held captive by thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, things like that. And again, if this is something that's interesting to you, um, the book is called Altered Traits. It's a fantastic book. If you if you like to know more about the brain science, what I, what I love about this book is as they went further on. I mean, we've only made it like halfway through the book, um, but I feel like there's <laughs> there for what we need for saying that mindfulness is a tool for greatness. I think that's clearly been shown just by these studies um, from the first half of the book. But the second half of the book, they get into things like the M the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal circuitry, the and how it's how it affects epinephrine and the release of the fight or flight brain chemical and stress hormone cortisol and and it goes through here's everything we know about the mind and the body and how mindfulness can impact it. And one of the other things that I love is that as these guys got further along in their research and they started to see this is legit science-based stuff, they started bringing on people who were doubters. They started bringing on people who were skeptics that thought this is hokey, this is stupid, it doesn't work. And they had them as part of the study so that they could comb through the data and they could comb through 
well, yeah, you, you said that this caused this, but really it, it didn't cause it. It was just they happened to coexist. And it was a way that they could kind of double check and they could kind of kind of make it irrefutable. Here's what the science says. Here's what the brain scans show. And I mean, these guys who their only purpose of being part of this study are is to try and disprove all of this. They also are in complete agreement. So then the next piece naturally is how do we use this? And there's, if you just Google mindfulness activity, there's a multitude of apps and YouTube videos and websites and books and things that you can listen to. I mean, there, there's resources everywhere. And one of the things that we are starting to do is that we are putting together kind of our own mindfulness activities that are specifically for high performing individuals, whether that's elite athletes or people in high pressure jobs where performance is important. And we're testing them out right now with some athletes. Um, those are going to be made available in the near future. Um, but for right now, I'll, we'll just leave it with this. There are all kinds of mindfulness activities out there. Go and find some that work for you. And if you have no other place to start, here's, here's a great thing that you can do. So just set an alarm on your phone and for five minutes, sit there and focus on nothing but your breath and see how it goes the first time. And then see how it goes the second time. And eventually by the fourth or fifth time, you're going to start to see, hey, I, I have a little bit more control of my mind and I'm starting to be able to kind of slow my focus down. I don't have as much of that monkey mind hopping around, swinging around from thought to thought. And, and that's what I would encourage you to, to journal about this week. Try some mindfulness activities, whether that's just quietly trying to count your breath, um, whether that's, you know, downloading an app or listening to something on YouTube, but give it a shot. Try to be mindful of your mind and your body and your emotions and, and just write about the experience. I mean, there is no right or wrong answer, but just make it a point to start to slow your brain down and to practice that skill of regulating our emotions. If you want more help on this topic, we'd be happy to help you out. Reach out on social media, Mental TR Plan. Would love for you to share this with anybody that you think maybe would be interested in a little bit of the science behind mindfulness. Until next time, don't settle for average. Make your plan and put it to work. 